Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these were, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons which was in all, all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alcalmeda, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day which he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So this morning, uh, we come to a passage that is really often overlooked. And the reason why is it's, it's sandwiched between right? The glory of the ascension. And then, of course, next week, the, the incredible event at Pentecost where we're going to answer all of your questions about the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, okay? Uh, no, it's not going to happen, but uh, there we are. So here we come to this passage, right? And it's often skipped, I think, just because of its location. And yet, you know, I would suggest to you that this, we're not going to skip it because there are some really important things in this passage as it relates to us, especially as you look at this and you see this church in these few verses and making decisions about a number of things. You know, uh, these early followers of Christ either made or had made or were making decisions that would affect the future of the church. And it might have been better with the handheld. If we, do we have an echo? It's pretty bad. So uh, I'm hearing it bad up here. So maybe it's the monitor. Um, is if you could turn that off for me, okay? So we're going to look at it, um, and the reason why is because I consistently get questions from people through the years. Maybe it's one of the top reasons why people come and meet me in my office, and that is, you know, I, I, what do I decide? How do I make a decision about this person that I'm looking at maybe marrying? Is this God's will for me? Is it God's will for me to, to you know, take this job? Or, you know, something is going on with my children and I don't know what to do. Uh, what do I, what, what decision do I make? It's hard to make decisions, isn't it? And we can get paralyzed. How do we make a decision and stay within the will of God? Okay. And so, okay, I got to stop for a second. Did, this is really disturbing me. Is it bad out there for you guys? No. no. Okay, so it's just me up here. All right. I will 
concentrate through it then. So we'll get through that. All right. So kill me up here if you can. I don't need to hear myself if that's possible. All right. Uh, so, okay. Hit the recalibrate button. Rewind. Okay. All right. So here we have these apostles. They're making decisions. And we're going to look at this passage in light of that grid. And there's really basically three kind of sections here. And maybe to help us organize it, think of it like the, the unified apostles and the false apostle and the new apostle. And in each of those three sections of this passage, you have decisions that are being made. And each of these sections help inform us how to make decisions or not make decisions that will keep us in the will of God. Make sense? Okay, let's start with the unified apostle. The unified apostles who were joyfully trusting and obeying their ascended Lord. Verse 12, and then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And by the way, just to stop there, Mount Olivet really isn't a mountain like we think of mountains. It's kind of like a glorified hill. It's about 400 feet higher than the Jerusalem. And it's about two thirds of a mile away from the, the Eastern Gate. So apparently the upper room that is referred to here was just inside the Eastern Gate and there's where they went for the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so here they've been at Mount Olivet. The ascension has happened. They're walking back. What do you think their attitudes were? What do you think the disposition of their, of their body language was? Do you think it was you know, discouraged? Do you think that they were afraid? Do you think that they were disappointed and disillusioned? Or do you think they were like on cloud nine, skipping back to Jerusalem, happy and excited and overwhelmed? Uh, I kind of think it's the, you know, maybe a, a mixture of both, right? Uh, but, you know, lots of excitement and joy and also some, some trepidation going on. In verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. This is in all likelihood the place where the Last Supper took place, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, lists the 11 apostles. Verse 14, where we want to focus, all these with one accord, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the other folks. What a different picture of the apostles we have here at the beginning of Acts than we did in the Gospel of Luke when he wrote his Gospel to Theophilus, right? I mean, think back for just a moment. This is the group of guys that, as, as Paxson referred to in our earlier portion of our worship service, this is the group of guys who were always jockeying for position who actually came to Jesus with a scheme, James and John, their mother actually, so that they could be the top dogs of all the apostles. And then the other apostles, what was their response? It wasn't that they thought that the idea was bad, it was that they didn't think of the idea to be the top dog, right? And so these disciples in many ways, while they, all kinds of good things had been going on, they were a dysfunctional group of dudes, right? They're always bickering and arguing and, you know, uh, saying things that was just, uh, really? Are you serious? I mean, think about it. Uh, they they, they um, repudiated Jesus. They disagreed with Jesus. They ultimately, one of them will betray Jesus. They will all abandon Jesus in a time of need, right? This is the group. And now you come to this passage and they are with one accord. Underline that phrase. Important phrase. 
The underlying Greek word is omothumadon. Omothumadon means to be of one mind, one purpose, one motivation, one impulse, one passion. Literally, one way of thinking of it is one soul. This entire group of people, which we'll see in a moment, it's 120, roughly 120 individuals. They're like, they are just one person. There is now, instead of being this dysfunctional group of apostles, there is a supernatural unity among them. There's no more jockeying for position. The people who had rejected him, his brothers, his own human family who had not believed in him and who thought he was insane and tried to get him admitted into what we would call an insane asylum, right? Now they are believers. They're in this room with the apostles and all the other disciples. Mary is there, right? the mother of Jesus. And by the way, just as a side note, this is the last time you'll see her in the scriptures, right here. And contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, she is not put up on a pedestal by these early believers. She is not worshiped. She is not seen as the mediator between us and Jesus and the co-redemptrix and everything else, the heresies that have been propagated by the Roman Catholic Church as it comes to Mary. Instead, she's just a part of the group doing everything that they are doing, participating just as a, a member of the group. And what are they doing? All these, with one heart, one mind, one passion, one soul, were devoting themselves to prayer together. That's what they're doing. You get a great picture of these 10 days. It's 10 days from the ascension to the Pentecost in chapter 2. This time frame, these verses cover 10 days. And we see what they're doing. In fact, at the end of Luke, we get another kind of glimpse They worshiped Jesus at the ascension and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What did they do during that 10 days? They went to the temple as a group praising and worshiping God, testifying about God. They gather together in the upper room. They devote themselves to prayer. Underline the word devote, another important word. It means to persist in something with perseverance to occupy yourself with something, to endure, and to stand perpetually ready to engage in whatever the activity is. In this case, it's prayer. Continually ready with perseverance, consistently, persistently praying. It's a, it's a word that the Apostle Paul will use in Colossians 4 and Romans chapter 12. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. They are persistently, consistently praising and praying with fervor and faith and expectancy. What a different portrait of a group of people than what we would have seen just a few weeks before. What has happened here? What's happened? What you see here is the outworking of a decision that has been made. Option number one that they had, right? They're at the ascension. Jesus leaves. They turn and say, hold on. (laughs) I didn't sign up for this. I didn't think that he was going to be leading us. His timing couldn't be worse. 
I mean, they, they are after us. I, I, no, I'm out of here, man. This, this is a bad deal. No matter how you look at it on paper, it is foolish to stick around and see what happens. It'll cost, it could cost me my head. I'm out of here. That's option number one, right? Didn't sign up for it. Mm-mm, he's left us. I'm gone, baby. Option number one. Option number two, I'm going to believe the promises of Jesus that we're gonna get the Holy Spirit and that he's gonna come back one day. I'm gonna believe those promises and so I'm gonna obey him. I'm gonna go back to Jerusalem and wait and I'm gonna be his witness. Option number one, it's all about self-reliance, personal wisdom. Option number two, it's all about faith and dependence upon our Lord. And they chose, they made a decision. They decided to obey his commands and to return to the city, to wait for the Spirit and become his witnesses. They decided to trust him and his promises. So the promises that Jesus made to them about the Holy Spirit and about the fact that he would return one day, those promises, they motivated these individuals, these early disciples, to obey him and to persist in prayer and worship. Now, before we move to the, the false apostle, let's pause here for a second, right? A lot of times, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll bring out all the application at the end of the sermon and ask, so what? This, this morning, we're going to do it as we go, okay? So there's some personal application, practical application right here that I don't want us to skip, that we need to consider. So let's start right here with this idea of the promises of God. Do, do God's promises and does his word, does it motivate you to pray with confidence, knowing that God will not only hear your prayers, but he is going to answer you. Maybe another way of looking at it is just to ask the question, seeing how they prayed, how is your prayer life? What's your prayer life look like? What's the, what's the environment of prayer in your small group? What does that look like? Warren Wearsby writes that prayer is both the thermometer and the thermostat of the local church. For the spiritual temperature either goes up or down depending on how God's people pray. I love that imagery. Prayer is a thermometer, right? It tells us that the quality of our prayer life as individuals and as a church tells us where we are at spiritually when it comes to vitality and vibrancy and health. It's a thermometer. Are we on fire? Do we have a fever for God or are we cold? Below body temperature, right? Where are we? And it's also a thermostat because if we are cold and lacking in power and energy and zeal and vitality, then then the way to address that deficiency in our Christian life is how? Turn up the thermostat of our prayer life. Commit ourselves to prayer. I'm so convicted by this. Because my default is to, to look to self or to look to man. And reality, it's so right there before me. Just get on my knees and pray. So how's your prayer life? It's an important question. Another important question. How am I contributing to the unity of this church? How am I contributing to the unity of our church? That, that word, omithumadon, 
with one accord. Unity, that's the word, unity. That's an important word here. You know, here's the neat thing about it. It's also a musical term. All of you musicians in here, it's a musical term. And, it, and, and, and you can appreciate what this term is like, especially if you have ever been in a band or a symphony or a choir where you had somebody who's either, in, maybe their instrument was out of tune or they could not sing a note if their life depended upon it. Right? Have you ever been in a choir where, can you carry a tune? Can I give you a wheelbarrow to help you out there? They cannot carry, you ever been in that kind of thing? You know how frustrating it is? You, you may not notice, but like over 30 years ago, I was an associate pastor and part of my responsibilities was to lead the congregation in singing and direct the choir that we had, right? And I enjoyed that. What are you laughing at? I can... <laughs> is that so hard to envision? Right? <laughs> yes. Come on. <laughs> so, so anyway, I have this gal in my, the choir, and guys, I'm going to tell you something. She was even worse than Rob Absey, those of you who know Rob, okay, right? And, and I can say that because Rob and I joke about that, and he loves it, right? I mean, she just could not sing on pitch. Paxson, it was the worst thing you've ever heard in your life. It was like sque squealing cats fighting in an alley, right? And thankfully, thankfully but she loved, she was, she was the one person who would never miss choir practice, right? And, but here's the great thing, she loved to sing. And she would come to choir practice, and she knew her voice was bad. She knew it. And so when we came time to perform, she would mouth the words, which was nice of her to, to do that. Wasn't that kind? You know, and y'all are choir directors. That's kind of nice, isn't it, right? It doesn't ruin the whole performance. But here's the thing. It took three and four times as long for the choir to learn their songs because you couldn't learn it. She would just throw you off, Right? So you have a musical term here, and the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, the idea is that everybody is hitting their note on pitch, on time, in harmony with one another, and it creates a beautiful symphony. That's the picture of church unity that you have here. So the question for us is, are we out of tune or in tune, right? It's easy to get out of tune. What does that look like in a church? It looks like grumbling and complaining. It looks like assuming the worst of each other instead of thinking the best. It looks like gossip and slander. It, it looks like uh, bitterness and holding grudges. It looks like putting our personal agendas and seeking glory for ourselves and what is important to us at the expense of maybe what is best for the church. It looks like us withholding and holding back when it comes to supporting the church and our talents and our treasures and our time. It looks like sitting back on the sidelines and just kind of watching and observing. That's out of tune. It hurts the unity of the church. In tune's a beautiful thing, right? When you're in tune, when you're building up the unity of the church, then, 
then there's going to be prayer where you're praying with other believers and you're praying for other believers and you're praying for the kingdom of God and you're praying for the needs of our church and of our community and we're unified in spirit as we pray. I tell you what it looks like. We are building up the unity of this church when we come through these doors on Sunday morning intent to just worship God at the top of our voices because he alone is worthy of the glory, right? And we gather together and we sing and we enjoy one another's presence as with one voice, omithomadon, right? We are with one accord praising our God with fervor and sincerity and in truth. That builds up the unity of the church. It builds up the unity of the church when we come to the service And as we come to the service, we ask God for the opportunity to love and encourage maybe someone else. When we look around and we see people that we don't know and we walk across the aisle and we introduce ourselves, maybe they're new, maybe they've been here forever. But when we take that action of friendship and hospitality to someone that we don't know, we are contributing to the harmony, to the unity of our church. When we sacrificially give and serve and take our places so that the next generation are discipled, we build up the unity of the church. We've, Catherine's been bedridden for a few weeks with a bad you know, bulging disc and sciatica and all this kind of stuff. And, and on, on a couple of occasions here, and I didn't expect it, I came home ready to start making supper. And both occasions, I came home late. And both occasions, uh, someone from our small group, someone from our church, they had brought a meal. I wasn't expecting it. Man, it was like fresh water to a parched soul who was scrambling to get supper on the table. What a blessing. Building the unity of the church can be taking a meal to someone who's in need, picking up the phone and calling someone who's going through a difficult time and checking in on them and saying, hey, can I pray with you? Building up the church looks like loving one another. In covenant, this first decision that the church made, it's huge, and it clearly showed that they were in God's will. And it's a decision that with all my heart, I pray that we will embrace here at covenant. William MacDonald wrote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that unity and prayer were the prelude To what? Pentecost. The prelude to experiencing the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our church. Like maybe it's never been experienced before. Unity and prayer. And how do you build unity? You pray together. This is why we want you in small groups, in our small groups, praying together. Now listen, unity just to be clear, does not mean uniformity. Doesn't mean uniformity. We will have different ideas and different approaches and different opinions about things. We won't always agree on things and the right approach. But even when we disagree, we will do it agreeably and biblically. That's unity. Unity is not uniformity. So we won't always agree on things because we are differently made and we have different passions and we have different gifts and different personalities and backgrounds. But church, 
Even in those occasions when we are focused on glorifying and obeying our Lord, when we are intent on experiencing His presence and His power in our lives, when our focus is to serve the kingdom, to love one another, and to be on mission so that the kingdom of God grows, then unity will blossom in our church and we will be a sweet aroma in the nostrils of our Heavenly Father. Because that's what unity does. So are you in tune or out of tune? Let's check our hearts this morning. In fact, let's just pause and pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, nothing can hold back your church more than spirits of disunity and division. Would you show each of us Would you reveal to us where where we are building the church's unity or where we are taking away from it, weakening it? Would you give us eyes that can see? Would you give us your guidance so that we would not be self-deceived, that we would be led by you on such an important matter? And Lord, would you make us a church that is driven to our knees, figuratively, literally, spending time in deep, persistent prayer. For your glory, I ask these things, Jesus. Amen. Amen, church? Amen, Amen, church? Amen. 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 The first decision, right, is unified apostles joyfully trusting and obeying their ascended Lord. Now, the second decision we can't spend a whole lot of time on this morning, but it's the false apostle who intentionally rejects and betrays our prophesied Lord, right? There's a decision that he made that is highlighted in this passage. In verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, stop right there for a moment. Look back at that verse. Remember wonderful words, right? Wonderful words. We, uh, the very first word this summer in that series was the inspiration of Scripture. Verse 15, excuse me, verse 16, is absolutely one of the strongest statements in the Bible concerning the inspiration of Scriptures. David didn't just write his Psalms. He wasn't just a songwriter who was out there in the fields jotting down lyrics. No, he was led by the Holy Spirit, and the words that he was putting on paper were the words that were coming from the Holy Spirit. What a great verse. So glad it's included. Verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then there's some parentheses where Luke explains to Theophilus what happened to Judas and his suicide in the field and all of that. And now picking up in verse 20, um, for it is written in the book of Psalms, and here he quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, may his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it. And then Psalm 109, let another take his office. So what a, what a beautiful picture. This man, Peter, after 40 days of being with Jesus post-resurrection, when Jesus taught them and showed them how in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the New Covenant is concealed. And that everything finds its yes in Jesus. Now, Peter is connecting dots in the scriptures from the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the events surrounding the life of Jesus Christ. 
And in this little passage, and I just want to bring out a couple of gospel applications very quickly before we move to the last part, and you're wondering about the whole casting of lots things. But let's pause for a second because this section is important. In fact, I want to take the takeaway truth from it. That it, it reminds us that God is sovereign over all the events, even those events that create the need for our decisions. I mean, think about it for just a moment. In this passage, Peter is reminding us of the absolute invincibility and the inevitability that God carries out his purposes. He was sent to die. It was prophesied that he would be betrayed. In John chapter 6, when Jesus is speaking to the apostles, he says to them, one of you is a devil. You're going to betray me. He knows this, right? And, And Judas, what he does, absolutely horrendous. And yet what he does should comfort us. Because that horrendous, horrible, sinful betrayal where he makes a decision to go against the man who he saw as the Messiah, even that event, as horrible as it was, was under the sovereignty of God. It was part of his divine plan. And this is important for us because Peter is reminding us of something here. That Judas was part of God's eternal plan. That when you are experiencing situations in life that are difficult, I mean, most of the time when we have to make the really important decisions in life, it can be a chaotic time, can't it? There's, there's something going on in our life. Our life might be turned upside down and we don't know what to do and we need to make a decision and things can be in chaos. Maybe it's something at work or in our family or with our physical health. And this should give us great comfort that All of those events that are creating the need to make a decision, they're under God's control. He is our loving father in times of stress. When we wonder what to do, he is our loving father who has us by the hand. And he is walking us through those events. And when we turn to him and depend upon him, he guides us through to make the right decision. And and are you going to make every decision right in your life? Nope. Not at all. And he is so sovereign that he can turn those stupid, boneheaded decisions into something for his glory. How cool is that? How cool is that? He can even take our sin, our sinful decisions, and he can turn them into something that brings glory to him and draws us closer to him. That's the sovereignty of our God. Don't miss that. And also don't mention, miss the cautionary tale here, church. You're here this morning. You're hearing the word of God. You're singing. You're praying. You're glorifying God. You're doing all the things that Judas Iscariot himself did at one point in his life. All the same things. Let's don't miss the implication and the application here that we all should look deep in our hearts. We should pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, am I a believer If you have doubts and questions about this, as always, I want to encourage you. Come see our pastor, Stephen Ministers. Come see me. Drop me an email, a text. Let's meet together. The most important questions that you can ever settle in your life and in your heart are the questions of your eternal soul. And Jesus says on that day, many will call me Lord. Lord, didn't we prophesy and do miracles in your name? And I will turn to them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Be false witnesses.
So as always, let me encourage you to come to think about that. All right, let's go to the final decision point here. We've looked at, right, the, uh, these, the, uh, these authentic apostles, these unified apostles, the false apostle, and now we have the new apostle, the one who's chosen to bear witness to our risen Lord. Verse 20, for it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. That prophecy's been fulfilled, right? He's buried in, a, in an ignominious way. And Psalm 109, let another take his office. This one had not been fulfilled. Judas needed to be replaced. And Peter's bringing this before the body. There's a decision to be made. Why did they need to replace G- Judas? Well, back in the book of Luke, Jesus had told the 12 apostles that you will sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel and the kingdom by my side. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Go to the book of Revelation, you see that the church, the New Jerusalem, is built on the foundation of the 12 apostles, not 11, 12. They need to replace him. That they're supposed to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews first, be witnesses to the Jews. And, and as you feel out that picture, there's 12 tribes of Israel traditionally, Jews that need to hear the gospel, it needs 12 apostles. And so they need to fill that position and they will fill it. And what's interesting is they will then go through the book of Acts to the Jews, spread throughout the world. They will witness and testify to Jesus. Along the way, they'll be killed. In the upcoming chapters, James, the apostle, is martyred in Jerusalem. And they don't fill that slot with another apostle. And as each one of them falls to the martyr's sword in some way or another, they don't refill those spots. But here, they need to fill the spot. They need to fulfill that prophecy, and they need to have those 12 apostles. So the question is, how do they decide on his replacement, right? How do they make that decision? And this is where it gets very practical for us, because we all have to make decisions, We all ask, what do I do? And the great thing about these verses, this little obscure passage, is you find a great paradigm for making decisions that keep you in the will of God. A great paradigm. First thing you see, right? In verse 21, is to, excuse me, oh, that's it. Consult the word of God for direct instruction and divine parameters. In verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. See, Peter turns to the Scriptures, and he reads what the Scriptures say. Let somebody take his place. He knew what Jesus had taught them and what the criteria for being an apostle was. You had to have been with Jesus from the baptism of John all the way through to the resurrection and, and by implication, the ascension. That entire ministry. Why? Because the first responsibility of the apostles was to bear witness and testimony to who Jesus is and what he had done. And so you had to be with them from the beginning. This was the parameters that Jesus had set up, right? And so Peter turns to them and says, we need to make a decision. We need to replace the apostle. So what's our criteria? What does the Bible say? What does the Word of God say? What does Jesus say? The same thing is true for us. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody has asked me for counsel on a decision that needs to be made. And I look at them and I will ask them, well, what does the Bible say? 
And many times they will give me verses from the Bible. They have clearly read the Bible. They know what the Bible says. They just don't like it. Right? And so those counseling sessions are very, very short. So what's the issue? Okay. The Bible tells you. So much of our questions about God's will and decisions that we need to make, guys, it's in the Bible. You don't need to go farther than that. So many other things are right there, but not everything. And you see this. So this leads us to the second thing. Consult with other believers and use your God-given faculties to narrow the options. In verse 23, they put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Excuse me. Now look, there were potentially 70 guys, I guess 69 once you throw out Judas, that were candidates for this position. Because as you read in the Gospels, Jesus sent out 70 of them. The the ones that we think of as the 12 were a part of that 70 to preach and do miracles. Remember that passage in the Gospels? They They were the leaders of all of these disciples that were following Jesus. So there was a pool of men available to fill this spot. Conceivably, since there's 120 people in this upper room, right? They're not all women and they're not all Jesus's family by any sense of the word. It's a part of that group. And so they begin to look at the people who are candidates and they narrow it down to two. How do they do that? I would submit to you, they, they use their God-given faculties. They, they talked about it. They were praying about it, you know, because they were praying consistently, asking God to give them guidance. And they finally, they narrow it down to two people. But they can't decide, which one do we do? Which one should take the place? So that leads us to the third thing. When you get to this point, you begin to pray with fervor and humility and dependency upon God, asking him for his wisdom and his will. And this doesn't mean that this is the first time you pray in the, in the process. You're praying all the time. But when you get to that place where it's decision-making time, this is where you stop. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They are now totally dependent and humble before God. And church, it's awfully hard for God's people to make bad decisions when we come to God with that posture of humility and dependence upon him, praying and waiting on the Lord to reveal what the answer is. So now you've done this and it comes to the final thing. What you do is you get yourself a set of dice. No, okay? You make your decision, trusting and depending upon the Holy Spirit for guidance. Now what's this deal with lots, casting lots, or we would say throwing the dice, okay? Remember, you're at a unique time. You're in a transitional time here. They are still technically, you know, under that old, some of these parameters of the old covenant. They don't have the Holy Spirit living within them yet. <clears throat> that comes in a few days. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And so in the old covenant, one of the ways that God's people would make decisions were to cast lots because as the Proverbs chapter 16 tells us, even the casting of the lots, the results of the casting of the lots are in 
the, <clears throat> excuse me, the hands of God under his sovereignty. He's sovereign over the dice roll. Think about that if you ever go to Vegas and lose. <laughs> He's sovereign over it all, right? And so this is how they made decisions in the Old Testament. Now, what's interesting, just as in this chapter, you never hear of Mary again in the Bible. I mean, she's you know, venerated because of being the mother of Jesus. You never hear of her again in the Bible from this point on. You never see the casting of lots from this point on ever again. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, when we get to that big conference and, and it was contentious and the debates and things that were taking place, decisions that were being made, no lots. It's just these, this process here. And then it ends with them the trusting and depending upon the Holy Spirit after prayer and making a decision. And if you've gone through those previous steps, I'm going to tell you right now, you know, you have a parameters of God's word, and now you have options within the parameters of God's word. You're in the will of God. Maybe you're not completely in the wisdom of God, but what you're doing is you're honing it down, honing it down until you hopefully are getting not only the will of God, but the wisdom of God in your decision. But listen, if you blow it and down the road, it looks like it was not the wisest decision, relax. Your heavenly father's got you, okay? He's got you. He'll redeem it. He'll work all things out for good, for his glory. So let me close all that by just maybe applying this to our church. We obviously, we have a huge decision to make as a church. Middle of November, we're gonna have a congregational vote. As I was thinking about all of this and this process, I was thinking, boy, I've had the pleasure of seeing this play out within the session and within the building committee over the last you know, year or more. As at different times, we've come to critical places. I'll give you an example. Choosing an architect, right? That's a big deal on a building project. You, gotta, you need the right architect. And we, we, the building committee narrowed it down, narrowed it down. They, they did their due diligence, two good choices, put it before the elders. Those of you who are new, the elders lead our church. It's called the session of which I'm just one person, one vote, right? And they brought it to the elders and we began to talk about it and we prayed and then we discussed it some more and we did a preliminary poll and we were evenly split right down the middle. With one, the, the one person, the odd vote, leaning towards the architect in Utah. So if, if nothing had changed, seven, six. And we never wanna do anything with a seven, six vote. That would just be, that's foolish. Okay, And so we just stopped and we said, let's take the next few days, evenings, and let's pray. And by Thursday morning, send in an email with your, your vote. Who should it be? And it was interesting. That's what we did. We didn't talk about it. We didn't do email chains back and forth, try to convince and everything. We just turned off the, TV, or turned off the Zoom and started praying throughout the next few days. And it was interesting how God just moved the entire session and we landed with the architect that we got in Jacksonville. Instead of it being tilted towards the one in Utah, I can't explain it to this day. I was pretty assured, well, guess we're going with the dude in Utah, right? Surprise! God moved otherwise. Okay. We, we did the same thing. Same thing happened to us when we uh, met with the architect, and especially when we got the unpleasing news of this thing's going to cost more money than what we thought. I think all of us are disappointed with that. 
And we, we found that out in, I guess, what, middle of June, something like that, late June. We came to the church in August to, to inform the church. Well, what do we do between June and August? Well, exactly what you find here in Acts. We kicked the tires. We looked for alternatives. We discussed everything. We went to, 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 to the truth of God's word. We consulted with other believers. We consulted among ourselves. We consulted with subject matter experts. And then we prayed. We prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed even more. And again, I was surprised. Personally, I was surprised at the unanimity of the session and how we just said, we need to press forward. And you've seen the proposal, right? Now, church, we can go through that same process again, and we should. All of us asking questions, praying, looking at this from the scriptures, talking with one another in an agreeable fashion, an agreeable manner, right? And then we're going to all vote on November, I think, 14th on what we want to do. And here's what I want you to walk away from. First of all, I want you to be assured that your elders have gone through this decision-making process. We didn't just do this out of thin air. There's hundreds of, I would say, hundreds of man-hours of prayer circulating and surrounding what is being proposed, okay? That doesn't make us infallible. We can be wrong. And that's why the congregation is going to be voting. And what I'm going to ask you to do is do the exact same process, okay? Do the exact same process that the elders have done. And I'm convinced that if all of us are dependent and humble before the Lord, we're laying aside our own agendas, we're laying aside our own wisdom. I think it should be done this way. I think it should be the, the architect in Utah. Mm, nope, want you doing Jacksonville. If we lay all, aside, all that stuff aside and we say, Lord, direct us, guide us, show us your will and your wisdom, I have absolute confidence that we will experience the presence of the Holy Spirit just as we have done in the session. And secondly, we will land exactly where God wants us to be and it will ultimately be a unifying decision whichever direction the decision goes because we're all submitting to the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's pray for that as we close. Heavenly Father, would you work among your people? Bring us to the place where we are unified in spirit and mind and in heart about this most pressing matter that we have before us as a church. And this, this is going to determine direction for our church for decades to come. It will have impacts. It's a huge decision. And Lord Jesus, we want to get it right. Would you convict us where we sin? Show us where we may be reliant upon self or our own wisdom. Guide our thoughts and our prayers. Guide our decision so that we are exactly in step with you, Lord Jesus. We want to be exactly in step with you. So we humbly come before you now. We confess our own sinfulness. That oftentimes we come to times, things like this, and we bring our own agendas. We bring our own opinions, our own wisdom. We bring our own junk. Sometimes, Lord, we can dismiss it because we're thick-headed at times. We all are. Show us when that's at play. Strip all that away. Bring us before you. Unite our hearts together. May we all be singing on pitch. 
In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.